Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Fright Rags. Now in their 19th year, Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products for your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Show off your love for the genre in style this summer with four brand new polo shirts from Halloween, Jaws, Night of the Living Dead, and They Live. These super soft polos are a cotton poly blend, each emblazoned with the iconic image from the film embroidered on the upper left chest pocket. All officially licensed and available now at fright-rags.com. Colors of the Dark listeners get 10% off when they use the code Colors of the Dark 2022 at checkout. All caps on that, Colors of the Dark 2022 for 10% off at fright-rags.com. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is also brought to you by Badlands. Which 1980s bad boy made a daring escape from prison and later had his freedom negotiated by a former Beatle? Why did the father of a Hollywood A-lister confess to the assassination of JFK? And just how did a serial killer manage to find his own 15 minutes of fame on national television while in the middle of a killing spree? Hear the wild but true stories behind these questions as the fame, fortune, and felonies of Tinseltown come alive in Badlands Season 4, Hollywoodland. In the newest season of Badlands, host Jake Brennan takes you to a place where designer fashion fades and Oscar buzz dies down, but insane stories never go out of style. Like the story of Sharon Tate, who was caught up in a freaky scene long before members of the Manson family came along. The story of Judy Garland's lifelong addiction to pills sending her over the rainbow much too soon. And the story of how Wyonona Ryder was connected to a child kidnapping case in her hometown. This season of Badlands features all of these crazy but true tales, plus the almost too crazy to be true stories of Sean Penn, Woody Harrelson, Lindsay Lohan, Mickey Rourke, Robin Williams, and Rodney Akala, aka the dating game killer. Listen to Badlands Season 4 now, all about crimes and careers of Hollywood's finest and infamous, on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcast. New episodes are released every Wednesday, or you can binge the entire season right now on Amazon Music. Welcome back to Badlands, where bad can always get worse. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is also brought to you by Feels. CBD isn't about what you feel, it's about what you don't feel, like stress, anxiety, and pain. And Feels is a better way to feel better. Feels is a premium CBD that will help you keep your head clear and feel your best. It's hassle-free and delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. Just place a few drops of feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. The thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is important and that everyone's dose is completely different. If you need a dose of chill on the go, pop one of Feel's new CBD-infused mints for a clear-headed feeling and fresh breath. In fact, Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help you guide your personal experience so that you, in fact, do find your perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure that you get the best use of your CBD. Joining Feels monthly membership makes your self-care super easy. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel your membership anytime. So start feeling better with Feels. Become a member by going to feels.com slash C-O-T-D and you'll get 50% off your first 
first order with free shipping. Again, that is feels.com slash C-O-T-D. That is F-E-A-L-S dot com slash C-O-T-D to become a member and get 50% off automatically off your first order with free shipping. Hello and welcome to Colors of the Dark. I am your host for the evening, Dr. Rebecca McKendry. Um, So we've been down for about a month now while I was off in Canada shooting a film. And as soon as I got back, my normal co-host, Elric Kane, is now shooting his own feature. Um, So tonight's episode is going to be a little short because I'm here solo, but I definitely wanted to make sure that we got an episode back up this week just to let you guys know that we are still here, we are still working, and we will be back in hopefully um, two weeks with a full episode um, deep diving into one of my favorite topics, I hope. But I wanted to um, come back tonight and bring you guys some of the exciting stuff I've been watching, some cool news I have going on, as well as interview somebody that I got to work very closely with on the movie I just finished. But first, let's catch up with some news. Um, So as I mentioned, both Elric and I are kind of having, I'll call it our hot filmmaking summers. Elric is shooting his own film right now, and I just wrapped up one called Elevator Game, which I shot in Winnipeg. Um, And I already miss all my friends up there, and it was just an absolutely fantastic shoot, and I hope I can tell you more about that film soon. In the meantime, my film that I shot last summer, Glorious, with Ryan Quanton and J.K. Simmons, comes out Um, July 21st, we are doing our premiere at Fantasia. Shortly thereafter, we will be playing um, an Alamo Draft House in Virginia, right outside of D.C. And um, I believe I can say that we are coming to Shudder sometime late in the summer, so please be paying attention for that. I am so excited to do our premiere on July 21st at Fantasia. I love that festival so much. It is just an absolute blast up in Montreal, so I hope to see a bunch of our listeners there and um, to have you experience seeing the film on the first on the screen for the first time as I will be as well. Um, I've yet to get to see it on a big screen, so I'm super excited for everybody to check it out. So with that, um, let me jump into some of the things that I've been watching. And I do have to say, what I tend to watch when I'm shooting a film is kind of weird. Like last summer when I was actually shooting Glorious, I ended up watching the Great British Baking Show the whole time. Like it was this weird palate cleanser for me to be um, making a horror film, but then coming back and watching things that were not quite horror, that was kind of a vastly different vibe. What I ended up watching a lot of while I was shooting um, The Elevator Game just over the last month and a half, I watched all of Love, Death, and Robots, like all three seasons on Netflix. And holy shit, if you guys have not been watching that, I highly recommend it. I will say they're not all horror, but most of them definitely head in that direction. And what I loved about it, about all three seasons, is that they were short. They were little tiny short segments. Sometimes they were seven minutes, sometimes they were 10, sometimes they were only three minutes. And every single one of them was vastly different, but they all did something really fascinating. Um, This show has been obviously running on Netflix for three seasons now. Um, I know David Fincher is one of the producers on it. 
And kind of the creation of it was that they were all these little like either animated or um, computer generated shorts that all were kind of a sci-fi bend, but they obviously, a lot of them bend pretty deeper into horror. I'll say that my standouts from the most recent season, from the third season, Bad Traveling, I absolutely love because it's about killer crabs and y'all know I have been jonesing for some killer crabs for a while now. Um, Night of the Mini Dead was just a breath of fresh air. It was so much fun. It was a zombie invasion done in just the greatest way possible. And then by far my favorite one of the third season was Jabaro, which was um, kind of in this alternate universe about a deaf conquistador who encounters a water spirit who kills people with her voice. And then how those two go about battling and where it goes from there. And that one just gets absolutely bonkers. Most of these little shorts in Love, Death, and Robots are only like seven minutes long. So they are just kind of the perfect coffee break things. And they're fun to binge, but also just you've got a couple minutes to spare. So a couple of weeks ago on the show, I may have even been on an episode of Deep Cuts, I mentioned that I had read the Philippines graphic novel, Tresse, and I had absolutely fallen in love with it. And I was so excited because I heard there was a show on Netflix. Well, I finally got to check out that Netflix show. I ended up watching the entire first season of the Netflix TV show, Tressie, which is based on the graphic novel that I had discussed. I loved this so much, and I am really, really hoping that it gets renewed for a second season. I'm nervous that it's not, though, because it's been a while since it aired and I haven't heard anything. But whereas I read the comic and immediately perceived it as this kind of gritty crime story about um, the supernatural uh, Philippine folklore stories... The actual TV show, which is animated, it was so film noir. Like, it, the film noir rang through so much more in this animated fashion than I had perceived it in the graphic novel. And it was just this absolutely wonderful film noir detective story about these supernatural beings all set around Manila and really giving this really strong vibe of Manila, both good and bad. And so if you guys are definitely looking for something a little bit different um, from standard horror viewings, Tresse was fun. This is adult. I don't recommend that your kids watch it just because it is animated. But um, yeah, this is it was a lot of fun. And honestly, it the stories were almost identical to the graphic novel. They used most of the stories from the graphic novel. But but it, if anything, it accented them. It made them even better to see them brought to life. Okay, continuing on. This was one that I had been dying to see, and I finally found a moment to watch it um, while I was shooting over a weekend. Broadcast Signal Intrusion from 2021. So this just recently came to Shutter. This one's directed by Jacob Gentry, and I usually love his work. And I love the concept of this movie so much. In the late 1990s, there is this video archivist who um, suddenly starts seeing all of these broadcast signal intrusions in some of his work. And he makes the connection that right after there are these signal intrusions, there's always a woman who goes missing in the area. And he begins to think that there's some type of connection between these broadcast signal intrusions and the missing women. Now, for those of you guys who are um, of a more recent generation, broadcast signal intrusions were something that we saw in the 80s and 90s, I would say possibly even into the 70s. And it was where people were able to disrupt the waves of normal network television. There's a very, very famous one where Max Headroom was kind of came through and um, why they chose Max Headroom is beyond me, but he was kind of pushed through and it interrupted the normal broadcast networks, uh, whatever they were showing there. Um, so in this movie, 
this archivist happens upon these three very specific broadcast signal intrusions where what the footage that is intruding, the footage that is being broadcast over whatever the network is running is honestly, it resembles a creepypasta that I'm very familiar with. So it's like a woman who is a robot and she's like glitching and freaking out. At times there's oil coming out of her mouth and you're watching her kind of move around. It's a real creepy stuff. And it looks like um, the creepypasta, what I've seen called Tara the Android. Um, it's also known as I Feel Fantastic, which is a creepypasta video that was passed around a number of years ago about, again, this female android who sings and moves really creepy. And so it's something similar to that that is being broadcast in. And so the archivist gets the idea that after these three very specific signal intrusions that women went missing immediately afterwards. And so he kind of falls down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out who did the broadcast signal intrusions. What can he find out about them? What can he see from the videos that kind of connects him? This is my type of movie because it immediately became a rabbit hole detective thing, which I love where it's somebody who is encountering this horror thing and he's trying to use clues from the background to try to piece it together. And the big crux of it is that his own wife went missing a number of years ago and he realizes that she went missing right after one of these broadcast signal intrusions. I have to say, I love this movie right up to the end. Um, I was, I kept waiting for this amazing explosive ending to come. This like, oh my God, all answers are going to be revealed. And I will tell you now, don't go in with that attitude because it, it definitely let me down a little bit at the end. I really enjoyed this film um, and think I would have had enjoyed it more had I not been expected all of the answers to be kind of spoon fed to me at the end about what I had been watching for the prior hour and a half. Um, so go in knowing that not everything is going to be answered, but it still had a real creepy vibe. There was a lot of parts with this movie that were genuinely chilling, um, even if it didn't have quite as firm as an ending as I wanted. Okay, on to one of my absolute favorites that I watched, um, Bloodstone Subspecies 2. Now, the way that I came about watching this um, while I was shooting was that I had been having a discussion with somebody on set about the greatest full moon films. And uh, I will always, you know, put ghoulies up and wave my little ghoulies flag and be like, oh, yeah, that's it's the ghoulies franchise. Right. And somebody else on set was like, have you seen Bloodstone subspecies, too? It's by far the best. And I had to stop and I was like, I don't know if I have like I've seen subspecies, but that was a long time ago. I don't think I had seen Bloodstone subspecies too. So I said, okay, challenge accepted. And I went back and I watched Bloodstone subspecies too over the weekend. And holy shit, they weren't lying. So this one is from 1993. It is a full moon film. Um, and again, I had vague memories of subspecies one that it was a vampire named Radu, but that was about the extent of my subspecies memories. It does not matter. You go into this, whether you've seen subspecies or whether you love it or not, or whether you remember everything about it or have no concept of it whatsoever. You can go into this movie completely blank and you will still be fine. This movie was so much fun and it's one that I can't believe I missed from 1993. 
directed by Ted Nicolou, who also did um, The First Subspecies and Terror Vision, which is just a really great movie across the board. The setup of this one is that a girl is visiting Transylvania and she gets turned into a vampire. And then not knowing what to do now that she's turning into um, an undead, she calls her sister in the States to come to Transylvania and save her. But... In the process, she ends up swiping this vampire family's bloodstone, which is like this rock that gives them powers. So the vampire is this guy named Radu, and he's this very classical vampire, very Nosferatu, very animalistic. But he's also got this kind of bougie sheen to him. And then he's uh, he has just killed his brother in the prior movie. And so most of this movie is him and his mom hanging out. And his mom is just this aged, decrepit creature of the undead who's equally disgusting. There is so much good gore effects in this movie. And I mean, good. Like, that was the biggest appeal of this is I was like, yeah, vampire. Yeah, he's trying to get her. He wants her to fall in love with him. There was some type of love story going on there. But holy shit, the gore effects in this. It literally opens with these little kind of ghoulies-ish creatures putting Radu's dis, um, like completely broken up body back together. Like literally they're pulling his head back together with little tendrils coming out and reconnecting. It was so good. Awesome goopy effects just throughout the entire movie. And I have to say, Full Moon does not make them like this anymore because this was in the 90s when they were shooting everything in Romania. And this film feels massive. It has absolutely beautiful production value as they are moving from the city streets to nightclubs to crypts to old castles to just amazing sets across the board. Like It is just such a massive feel and just beautiful production design across the board. Um, I looked up who did the effects on this one because I was so impressed by it. And it's Wayne Toth, who eventually goes on to become Rob Zombie's main effects person, special effects makeup person. Um, and so it makes sense that, you know, he was he was involved in this one. Um, so this is Bloodstone Subspecies 2. This was so much fun. And I believe it was a whole $4 to rent on Amazon. So if you're looking for just a 1990s throwback, one that maybe you haven't seen or you're just looking for something with absolutely amazing special effects, head to Bloodstone Subspecies 2. Okay. So I wanted to include at least one graphic novel. I read a lot of graphic novels while I was shooting. That was kind of one of the biggest things that I did was I read a lot of graphic novels, some of which I'm going to save um, for next show. But I wanted to mention one that I really enjoyed that I've since gone on to order a couple more volumes of. And this is Homesick Pilots. Um, I picked this up, I picked up the first volume at Free Comic Book Day a number of months ago and didn't get around to reading it, so I took it on the plane with me and I read it my first couple of weeks in Winnipeg. Um, This is from 2021 and it was put out by Image. The authors are Casper, oh gosh, I'm going to say this incorrectly, Casper Wingingard, I hope I didn't slaughter that, and Dan Waters, um, both who have a lot of street cred in the DC Comics world and having worked in superheroes and stuff like that. Homesick Pilots hit a lot of really sweet spots for me. It is about a punk rock band in Southern California in the kind of the summer of 1994. And essentially there, it's three foster kids who make up this band and they call themselves the Homesick Pilots. And they are talking about where to throw the most kick-ass punk show, what can they do that's totally punk rock. And there's this haunted house in their town that all of them kind of have these folk stories about, these background stories. And one of the guys even claims to have known somebody who was killed there. And so this haunted house, well, one of the girls one night 
decides she doesn't want to go back to her foster home. So she decides to head to this haunted house and she's like, fuck it. I'm just going to go inside and I'm going to sleep there. And immediately the house becomes alive and almost possesses her. And then the story gets fucking bonkers wild. I can best describe it as like a ghost story from the house's perspective, like a haunted house story from the house's perspective as channeled through this teen girl who kind of becomes the vehicle and voice for the house as she's trying to help it reclaim its history, reclaim its past and come to terms with everything that has happened in it. This was absolutely wild and the artwork was absolutely gorgeous. I've already kind of picked up and and kept going with it, but the volume one was just dynamite. So um, I highly recommend this one to everyone out there. Homesick Pilots was just phenomenal. Um, So Elric and I will be diving into some of the new releases that we have checked out. um, Things like the, the, um, the recent releases of Stranger Things and some of the updated movies next uh, when we are back in two weeks. Um, But for now, I wanted to give you guys um, an interview. And again, this is going to be a little bit shorter episode. But when I was on set, I got to spend a lot of time with our special effects makeup person, Doug Morrell. And I was just so inspired by how he got started in effects makeup and where his career went and all of the literally like 150 credits he has doing special effects makeup um, throughout his career. So I am going to talk to him and we're going to dig a little bit into his background and how he got started doing makeup. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their nutrition drink, AG1, a product that Elric and I have been taking every day. After months of being in quarantine, Elric and I both wanted to improve our health in the new year. So we decided to try Athletic Greens. It's a health supplement that actually tastes great and really boosts your energy. Plus, it's from New Zealand, which Elric loves. So what is AG1? Uh, With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, all those things. I started taking mine daily right before my breakfast um, and before I started in with the coffee. So it became this thing that I was looking forward to as soon as I got up in the morning. It lets me know that I'm getting the nutrients I need. And after trying to choke down an assortment of homemade kale and quinoa smoothies I was making, I got to say the taste of this is great. It's got this wonderful lemon flavor. And it's lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, vegan, dairy-free, paleo, or gluten-free. As you guys know, I have crazy food allergies, and it is free from all of the eight major allergens, which I was really impressed with. AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits, and it costs less than $3 a day, so way cheaper than the cold brew habit. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. I take it like 30 minutes before coffee, and it actually has given me a little boost of energy, which has been great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance.
Well, I am thrilled to welcome to the show um, somebody who I have, sp- have spent a great deal of time with lately. This is amazing special effects extraordinaire, Doug Murrow. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. So you are special effects makeup focused and you have been doing this for a long time. And I have to tell our listeners that when I found out I was going to be shooting in Winnipeg, I started reaching out to some of my friends, my filmmaker friends saying, okay, who should I reach out to? I need to create, we'll call it a creature for now. Who can I reach out to to kind of create this creature? And probably six different people were like, you got to go to Doug Morrell. Like he is, he is the only one. Um, I believe that one of them referred to you as the Rick Baker of Winnipeg. Um, yeah, it was immediately. (laughs) And you worked on a show and helped out with a creature that gave every single one of us nightmares the first season of channel zero. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Oh my God. That one just haunted me. The tooth monster, all of it was just absolutely horrifying. But I really want to start back at the beginning because I got to hang out with you on set a lot and I got to learn a little bit about kind of your backstory and how you got into this. But I'd love for you to start with, when did you decide that you wanted to do special effects makeup? Like what was your first moment? Oh, I mean, you know, I got into this as a as a little kid back in the 70s. I love movies. And, you know, back then we didn't have an American world from London and that kind of stuff. It was the Universal Monsters, Frankenstein's Monster, Dracula, the Wolfman, that really intrigued me. Uh, and then I saw the original Planet of the Apes uh, when I was seven. Uh, and that was it. I knew I had to do this. I had to make up people for the movies and doing that kind of stuff. I was just fascinated by it. Now, how did you get started? Because the seventies, I know there were not uh, like you couldn't go to like the Tom Savini school and there weren't a lot of books on it. So where did you kind of start dabbling into it? I just went to the library and really the only book was uh, a really famous uh, makeup book called Corson stage makeup. Mm-hmm. Took it out of the library and, uh, uh, just learn what I could from it. And luckily I came from a family that was very artistically inclined. Uh, both my older brothers uh, were amazing artists. My dad, who was a doctor, he was the best artist of all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and at Halloween, we didn't buy masks and stuff. We did makeup. Um, oh, wow. So that was, that was, you know, as far back as I can remember, that's, that's what we did. And in 1975, I got this book called, uh, Movie Monsters by Alan Ormsby, who was a, I think a screenwriter, and he worked with Tom Savini on early, early projects. And it was kind of a makeup uh, slash how to put on monster show kind of book for kids. And uh, But it showed you how to do monster makeup. And that was kind of like the first real monster makeup book that I got. And I just started playing around with it. And I was about nine um, when I started no. doing it. Was there anything being filmed in Winnipeg at the time? No. 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 When did that come about, actually? This is a completely separate conversation, but when did Winnipeg, I mean, even just while we were shooting there, there were, what, like four other productions going on? Right now, Um, there's 11 shows shooting here, which is incredible for Winnipeg is amazing. Wow. Yeah, I think that there was probably like five or six while we were going last month. And even that, I was like, oh my gosh. So when did that kind of boom in Winnipeg? Uh, kind of in the mid nineties, it started to, they just, uh, they would shoot Canadian things here, but it was, you know, maybe 
one or tw- one or two a year kind of thing. And there was a, um, you know, a small group of people that, that worked on these shows and a lot of independent things, but there was, it was nothing like it is now where American projects would come here. And I wasn't even living here when I got into the business formally, um, which was 1989. I was doing commercials and theater here, but I moved to Vancouver in 1990 because they didn't make movies here where, where I would glue rubber to people. <laughs> so that so. was that actually transitioned beautifully into my next question was, yeah. where was your first industry break? Like, what was the very first thing that you got hired on to work on? Uh, are you talking here, like in Winnipeg or in Vancouver? No, in Vancouver. The, the very first thing I got hired on was, I think it was uh, one of the very first episodes of the Highlander TV series. Mm-hmm. And um, they needed somebody who could see their finger being grabbed by somebody and being broken on camera. Um, now, luckily, by that time, I had taken the Dick Smith uh, makeup course. I got mm-hmm. to know Dick in kind of the mid to late 80s and uh, had taken his course. And that really helped when I moved to Vancouver because that gave me a little bit of uh, – uh, gave me a little it's, bit of, um, that's definitely some clout there. Say a little bit of clout. Him, yes. Yeah. And back in, back then when I moved to Vancouver, there's very, very few people who were doing makeup effects. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, I, I got a job right away when I moved there at a store that sold makeup to people working in the industry. So I would show them my, what I have a portfolio at the time and told them I took this Dick Smith course. Of course, everybody knew Dick Smith was. And that really helped right away that I started to get uh, little jobs here and there making making stuff. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So it looks like one of your first like big projects, like you did Jumanji. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. What did you do on Jumanji? Uh, so there's uh, the, the main thing we did was the little boy who turns into the monkey. Mm-hmm. So that was that was what we did. So those appliances were made by Amalgamated Dynamics in LA. Yep. They built everything for the show. They built the crocodile that Robin rode, and uh, the spiders, and uh, there's a giant plant that comes alive. And uh, so that we did that. Uh, that was our main gig. But we also um, did an aging makeup on uh, David Allen Greer. He plays uh, uh, a cop in it, and we have to show him kind of aged with what's a paint makeup. Um, and there's a few other little things that we did, but that was the main thing. That was what we did for about two months was make up Bradley Pierce as the little monkey boy. And then you also have X-Files pretty early on. You've got a couple of X-Files episodes. What particular yeah. role were you doing on those? Uh, I, I would just go in and help my friend, Toby Lindela, who mm-hmm. did, did the show there. Um, and uh, so I helped him do the pilot and then uh, I would go in and just help uh, here and there and, you know, build aliens and, and whatnot. And uh, nice. I got to act in a couple of episodes, which was fun because really? back then I weighed considerably less than I do now. So uh, I got to play an alien in an episode and uh, I got to play kind of a ghostly corpse apparition thing in another one. So it was fun. Yeah. You know, 
When I lived in Virginia, we were actually, I was up in DC when they were shooting the X-Files movie and I was so excited and they had this giant sign up that was like, if you walk through this, you may potentially be in. And Mm -hmm. I know I got so excited. I walked straight through the scene and I stared right down the gun of the camera (laughs) lens because I was just like, oh my God, is that Chris Carter? And that was, I know I just stared straight down and they were like, fuck, I guarantee that they lost it all because I had to stare. Total pro. (laughs) Total pro, total pro. At the time, I didn't know not to do that. But um, okay, so I've basically been doing this entire interview thus far, holding back my temptation to go totally nuts on this next title that you worked on. Because I got to confess, Deep Rising is probably one of my favorite movies ever made. And you have a credit on Deep Rising. And that is one that I would love to hear about it because it's such a wild dynamic mix of practical effects and then CG effects. But the practical effects are so amazing. Oh my God, when the guy gets digested and like spit back out, it's some of the coolest shit that we had in the 90s. Um, So tell me a little bit about Deep Rising. Well, yeah, that was really neat for for many reasons to work on. One was, uh, it was the first time that I worked with uh, makeup artist Stefan Dupuy. He won an Oscar with Chris Wallace for The Fly. Mm-hmm. So that was really neat. Um, so there was a, a crew of us that were working in Vancouver building all kind of the things that the creature did to people, all the the kind of uh, corpses that, that the creature had partially eaten and they were rotting and whatnot. And we created all the goo and slime and uh things like that um and then the other thing that was really really cool about it was we were we were working on a movie that Rob Botine was creating the designs for the creature so that was uh that was really neat and to get to meet Rob was uh you know that was like meeting Rick Baker or Stan Winston you know this guy Still did is. that bowling and oh yeah and legend and whatnot so uh that was really cool. And, and that, that whole day where we did the guy who got spat out by the creature, uh, was something, yeah, that I'll never forget. That was such a, an amazing day. It's such a cool effect, even like Mm -hmm. by today's standard, like I love that movie so much, but I will be the first to say like some of the CG stuff, it's just not as beautiful today as it was, but oh man, those practical effects in that movie hold up so beautifully and you can tell the difference between which is which um, as it's going through. But then you followed that up shortly with another one of my pipe dream, like amazing product projects. You worked with Cronenberg on Existence, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So again, that. That was uh, Stefan. Uh, we just kind of bonded uh, really well. So when he got uh, existence, he gave me a call. So I went to Toronto and I was there for about two months and worked on that. And basically worked mainly just in the shop, just building stuff with Stefan and and his crew. Uh, but the main the main thing that I built was the. Uh, there's a scene where Jude Law is in the uh, this Chinese restaurant and he orders the special, which is the mutant lizard thing, which he eats it and then he takes the bones and turns into a gun and shoots the 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 Chinese waiter. So my main thing was I spent weeks and weeks devising an edible 
mutant lizard that he could eat off the bones. So he was actually um, eating that? He was, oh my, yeah. I always assumed that that was kind of like faked for screen, that he was not actually no. like swallowing it. No, it was real. And he was a vegetarian. So so I spent weeks and weeks and weeks coming up with something that he could eat and something that looked lizardly, lizard-y. So uh, uh, I ended up making the flesh out of uh, eggplant. So I would cut it into strips I would cook it in the microwave and then I would glue it onto these plastic bones that, that would make up the, the, the gun that he would put together. And then I molded um, some lizard, uh, uh, some stuffed lizards. Uh, I molded those in silicone and then I brushed in a gelatin formulation that he could eat. And then I airbrushed the gelatin skins with food colors and then I just built it all Um and then we tested it a million times. And then the day before we shot, I spent about 10 hours making as many mutant lizards that I could so they could do takes that he could eat it and pe- peel the skin off and he could eat the skin and whatnot. And then I had some hand in the in the Chinese waiter um, uh, getting shots and and all that. So it was a, it was a really amazing experience. Oh my gosh, that scene yeah. is so crazy. And those the they actually look greasy. Like it it's yeah. such an effective moment with those pieces of flesh. Um mm-hmm. so that's just absolutely beautiful work. Did oh, you actually get to meet Cronenberg? Uh not really. I mean, I went to set one day and he was there and I was standing with Stefan right beside him, but mm-hmm. uh you know, it was kind of hectic and uh, you know, you're a little starstruck, right? Because it's Cronenberg. So I would be. Yeah. I saw him speak once at the Egyptian in Hollywood, and it was it was just the most amazing thing just to hear him speak about one of his movies. I can't even imagine like seeing him in action on set and how that must feel. Um, so oh, yeah. I, well, I would, and just uh, you know, I'm I'm really lucky that that yeah, yeah, that is that is crazy. So. As you kind of progressed in your career, kind of how did the industry itself change? Because you started at a point where it was very much like practical effects reigned and there weren't a lot of people doing it. But then you saw it all the way through kind of more of the CG stuff coming in. Um, So how have things changed over time? Mm -hmm. Am I cutting out again? I I mean, for me, it didn't really change all that much because I was never one. I didn't. No. Okay. No, you're still there. Um, Awesome. uh, For my career, it didn't really change a lot. Um, uh, Because I, I, you know, I was more a makeup special effects guy as opposed to doing, you know, creatures and dinosaurs kind of thing. So I was more um, kind of Dick Smith than Stan Winston, right? I was always working on people more or less for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just interesting to go from working in film and no digital effects to uh, working digitally and having people, a director come up and say, Oh, we, you know, we can fix that digitally. Don't worry about that. Or we're going to do the blood digitally, or we can add to that. Um, and I can see why a lot of people who do what I do, uh, some, sometimes take the, the approach that, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be lazy. I want to make this work 
totally practically. And if you have to do some stuff to augment it, go ahead. But I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, I, they can just fix it digitally and not really worry about it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm that kind of mentality. I want to make something that that you can just shoot and not really worry about, um, you know, unless unless you don't have the time or the budget or something or yeah. You know. So what have been some of the favorite projects that you've worked on throughout the years? Like what are the ones that you look back and you're like, God, that was damn good work. Uh, I mean, Jumanji, of course, cause it was mm-hmm. Jumanji, but uh, I did a project here in Canada uh, about a famous Canadian politician, uh, Jack Layton. So I had to make up uh, uh, the actor to look, like him and he, we see him age through the decades and he, mm-hmm. he, uh, sadly gets cancer and, and passes away. So I had to make him look very emaciated and sick. And, uh, he wears prosthetics throughout the whole movie. And it's my, the only project I've ever worked on where I can watch it, uh, years later and not really think about, Oh, I, he's covered in prosthetics. Uh, it just, it worked, uh, every single frame of the show, which I'm really proud of. Um, so that's that was probably my my I don't know if it's my greatest achievement, but it's one of the ones that I'm most uh, happy with. And what is kind of your favorite thing to do? Like I, I, every artist has the one thing where they're like, oh, my God, I just love doing age makeup or I love making monsters. Like what is the one thing that you consider to be your favorite? Uh, it is age makeup. That's the that's the thing that I most enjoy doing because uh many reasons i mean you know we all know what an old person looks like so it has to work 100 percent of the time there's no hiding things with you know if it's an alien no you know as far as i know no one's seen one yet so you can do whatever you want and no one's gonna say that's not what it looks like or uh blood effects everyone just loves blood effects because there's always blood and people just they think that's really cool um, but making somebody realistically aged, um, is a huge challenge. And, uh, and I, again, I'm, you know, being a student of Dick Smith, um, that was, that was his claim to fame. And it's the thing that I studied most of, uh, when I was younger. So, uh, aging is my aging or character type makeup is my favorite thing to do. Now, I had you create a creature for the movie, which we can't talk too much about yet, but I would love to hear kind of your process because I was really fascinated um, by how you kind of create a creature from the ground up in that capacity because we were kind of like I was just throwing vague concepts at you and then you were coming back with like full designs and, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we did this or tried this? How do you approach creating a monster like that? Um, I mean, a lot of it, hopefully is input from the director, but which you don't always get. And that was the great thing about working with you was you gave a lot of input. Um, and, but you're also a great collaborator. So if, if I suggested something, you, uh, you were just open to it, which doesn't always happen either. Right. Oh, thank uh, you. So that, well, no, that's what made the job fun was that you were so into it you were into all the processes that I, when I was on set and observing you, which you didn't know, uh, you know, I could tell that, that, 
that you put a lot of thought into everything, you know, the, obviously the production design and the sets and the props and the costumes and, um, you know, you had a real plan, but I could also tell that you just really worked well with everyone because you, you have that passion that, that it's not a, it's not just a job. It's what you love to do. And, uh, you know, sadly, not everyone is like that, that you work with. So, uh, when you encounter someone like yourself, who is so in love with the whole process, you know, you want to try and do your best for, for that person. Um, so that, so that just made it easy. And then, you know, just coming up, trying to come up with something that we could do with the time that we had and the budget that we had, of course, and all that. Um, and just hopefully making something that looked cool, you know. So talking about the collaborative process, one of the projects that you've worked on that I really would love to know more about is Tales from the Loop because that is so stylized and it has so much going on with it. I feel like there were, had to be so many different voices um, with creating the robots and all of this stuff in it. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing on Tales from the Loop in the process? Oh yeah, that was uh, that was a really amazing project to be a part of for many reasons. Um, oh, what was the? I'm just trying to remember the the name of the director who was also one of the producers. Oh, Mark. Oh, he used to be a music video director. He was the original director of The Wolfman with Benicio del Toro. Do you know what I'm talking about, Rebecca? Mm. I don't know. I don't recall his name, but I know that movie well. Um, oh, I can't remember his name anyway. Um, yeah, it was just a really, really cool project. And it was, it's one of the projects, one of the few projects that came to Manitoba, um, not because of our tax credit or anything, but because they just really loved the, the locations and, uh, knew that we had really good crews here. Um, so I was the makeup department head. Um, so I was in charge of all the makeup, all the regular makeup, uh, as well as all the makeup effects, um, which there were, you know, there were quite a few things, uh, different things to do. And then uh, in the last episode, there was quite a bit of aging to do, which was, uh, which was really terrific. Um, and then all the robots uh, were built by legacy effects in LA. And that was, Another great thing about this project, because I made that connection with uh, one of the founders of Legacy, Alan Scott, who is just the most terrific uh, person um, you could ever meet. Just uh, He's become a, a good friend and uh, a great collaborator. And um, I've needed some life casting done in L.A. and they've done it for me. And so the whole the whole uh, the whole experience was just great. And then an amazing cast. Um it was just wonderful from start to finish and very challenging too, because there are very, there's very specific uh, looks and uh, a very specific plan as to how this whole world was supposed to, to be and, uh, and look. And uh, so it was, it was terrific uh, from start to finish. So um, yeah, it was great. Um, well, Doug, before I lose you, I have to ask, what is the one 
thing that you have always dreamed of working on, whether it be like a reboot or a particular type of monster or a particular thing? What is the one thing that you've always dreamed of doing? Uh, overall, there was a there's a movie that came out in 1985 called Legend, which I know you're aware of with Tom mm-hmm. Cruise. And uh, just everything about that movie, everyone is in really stylized makeup and prosthetics. Uh, I would love to do something like that. So incredible and amazing. Uh, I loved that world. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love Legends so much. That is such a good answer. Well, thank you so much for joining me for just this, this rather quick interview. I promise we're going to get you on for a much longer one when Elric and I get back and we get rolling again. But I just really wanted to talk with you um, after spending so much time with you on set and seeing how just absolutely fantastic your work is. Your oh, website you. is characterillusions.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Excellent. So everybody check it out and definitely check out Doug on socials as well. And you can see all of his beautiful work there and just all of the amazing movies he has worked on. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Doug. And thank you guys for listening. We will be back in two weeks and hopefully Elric will be back with me. And I think we might be taking a deep dive into some sharksploitation. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. Hurtado.